Welcome to The Word at First Pres, the official podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. During the fall, we're going to be working through a series called God in Science. Each week, we're going to be exploring the various ways that God has revealed to us through the study and field of science. Our first reading today comes from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 45 to 49. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the physical, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today comes from Exodus. And this is familiar to you all, since probably you know the Exodus story, which is that God rescues the Israelites from their slavery. It says, Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I've also seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. The word of the Lord. So we are doing a sermon series from now all the way through the fall called God in Science. And each week we are going to be looking at the various ways that the field and study of science can reveal to us God working in the world. Today, I want to take you back to your high school biology class. I know many of you probably don't want to go there, but we're going to go there anyway, see what you remember. Let's see if we can dust the cobwebs off a little bit. So, do you all remember the two men who are responsible for discovering the structure of the DNA molecule? Do you all remember who that was? Structure. It's a double helix. Do you remember the two men? Watson. Thank you. And not Sherlock Holmes, as TC said with the other one. Watson and Crick. Yes, so it's James Watson and Francis Crick. They discovered that DNA is in a double helical structure. And this was a huge revelation when it came out. Because it just opened this whole realm of science. And it told scientists, ultimately, that our DNA is basically this big, large instruction manual that exists inside of our cells. Now... That instruction manual, it's made up of all these smaller parts. They're known as nucleic acids. 
Do you remember, since we didn't know Watson and Crick, I don't know if we're going to be doing very well on this, but we'll try anyway, the nucleic acids that make up DNA. So I'll give you the first letters of each room. It's A, C, G, T. So A stands for, do you remember, adenine, C stands for cytosine, G for guanine, and T, thymine. Adenine always pairs with thymine, cytosine always pairs with guanine. My high schoolers should know that right now. You all should already be aware of that, since most of you, I'm sure, have taken biology. Now, here gets even a harder question, which is, what do all these ACs, Gs, and Ts actually do inside of us? And I had to look this up, because I could not remember that. And I found out, and I remembered after seeing it, that it helps our bodies, and what it does is it synthesizes proteins. That's what the instructions are to synthesize proteins. And proteins, they're the building blocks of life, right? It's basically all the stuff that makes up your bone and your muscle and the fat in your body and the enzymes and all of the hormones. All of that stuff comes from proteins. And in your body, you have about, I'd say, 100,000 different proteins that make up who you are. So Watson and Crick, they make their discovery. It's this big new thing. And it causes scientists to realize that your genes determine a lot about who you are. Because if your genes are good, well, everything is fine. But if you have flaws in your genes, it can cause genetic defects, you can have immunological diseases, you can have mental illness. All of that can be traced back to your genes. So, a principle developed in biology. And you all were taught this principle, I was taught this principle, it is still the dominant principle to this day. And the principle goes something like this. Your DNA determines everything about who you are. It determines how you look, it determines your personality, it determines your intelligence, your athleticism, or lack thereof. All of it can be traced back to that instruction manual inside of your cells. The better your instruction manual, the better life you will have. But in the last 20 years, that thinking in science has been revised a great deal. And geneticists have come to realize that your genes do not determine as much about the outcome of your life as they once thought. And this all began, this whole revision, with a little project known as the Human Genome Project. Ever heard of that one before? Okay, there we go, now we're getting some nods. All right, Human Genome Project. What was the whole point of that project? Do you remember, it started in the late 80s. The whole concept was they wanted to understand all of those A, C's, G's, and T's. Every single one of them that's inside of your cells. They wanted to map it all out. The reason they wanted to do that is because if they could see all of your genes laid out in front of them, then they could correct a lot of the medical issues that come from problems with these genes. It was a very altruistic, very noble goal that they were aiming for. And it has helped a great deal in this regard. But the Human Genome Project was not the bastion of answers that they thought it would be. And here's why. When they finished the Human Genome Project in April of 2003, they laid it all out, and they were a little bit confused. Because they assumed beginning this project, that when they got finished, we would have somewhere between 100 and 140,000 different genes in our cells. So they believe this to be true because a few years prior to finishing the Human Genome Project, they had mapped out the genome of one of the simplest organisms on the planet. It was a worm 
that's only about a thousand cells long. It's barely visible to the human eye, and it's called Sinorhabditis elegans. And it has about 24,000 genes inside of this thing. So they map it out, and the assumption was, after they finished looking at this worm, that as an organism grows in complexity, that so will the number of genes. And since we have about 100,000 proteins in our body, they assumed that we would have about 100,000 genes, one gene for every protein. But they get finished with the Human Genome Project. They get to the end, and they look at it, and they realize we have 25,000 genes. That's 1,000 more than that little worm that you just saw that you can barely see with your eye. 1,000 more. And they're sitting there scratching their heads because they're thinking to themselves, how can this possibly be? We are so much more complex than a worm. We're way cuter than a worm, too. Wouldn't you agree? Right? <laughs> and on top of that, our brains are billions of times more powerful. How can a thousand genes possibly account for this discrepancy? Until they realize that their thinking about DNA was all wrong. And to help you understand how their thinking was all wrong, I want to take you back to your childhood. Do you remember when you were a kid and your parents gave you a present? You tore the present open, and there on the box, you saw the picture of this toy that you were about to play with. And you start salivating at the idea of opening this thing up and that you get to play with it, right? Okay, a toy like that for me, there was a toy that I wanted so badly. It was called Robostrux. Now, I was going to explain to you what Robostrux looked like, but I went back and I found the 1985 commercial that they had for this thing. So, I want to show you the commercial for Rubber Shucks because now you can see why I was so excited about this thing. So go ahead and play, play this. Robostrucks. Now you can construct what may be the ultimate robot monsters. Robostrucks. Each sold separately, batteries not included. Then you can unleash the power of Robostrucks. Robostrucks. But who could have known these robot monsters would be this incredibly powerful? Robostrucks. Only you can build them. Only you can control them. Or can you? Robostrucks. Robostrucks robot monsters are sold separately and ready to construct. New from Tomy. Robostrucks. So, you can imagine as a kid, I saw this and I was like, well, I was like those kids in the background. I was like, I gotta have this. It's gonna be awesome. So, my mom gets it for me for Christmas. I open up the box. And I am not kidding, there are like a thousand parts on the inside of this thing. Like you dump it out. I was expecting to see pretty close to what you saw in the commercial, right? Like, no, 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 no. Nothing like that. Like, it all just dumps out on the floor. And so you start reading the instructions, which were clearly written by some alien species because they're totally incomprehensible. And you start trying to put this thing together. Side note on Robostrucks, by the way, is that when you finally construct this thing and get the thing together, it can barely move. Like, in the commercial, it looks like they're going, oh, no. Like, they can barely function, and they literally fall over all the time. I actually wanted to get one and bring it in as my sermon prop, but they are now collector's items. And I found one online. It was like $800. No joke. And I figured that probably wasn't the best use of the church's money, so I wasn't going to go out and purchase it. But I thought about it. It was a thought in my head for a minute there. So anyways, Robostrucks. You get the toy, right? There's basically three things at play. You have you, 
the parts for the toy, and the instructions to put this thing together. Now, the parts by themselves do absolutely nothing, and the instructions by themselves do absolutely nothing. If you want to play with this thing, you have to interpret the instructions, right? And you have to put it together. You got to put the pieces together. Because the truth is, the pieces are just going to sit there without you acting on them. Well, DNA is the exact same thing. DNA are the instructions for the toy. Without a force acting on those instructions, they do absolutely nothing. And just like a toy, those instructions can be interpreted in all kinds of different ways. And so what they realized after the Human Genome Project is that one gene can code for hundreds of different proteins. Hundreds of different proteins. Remember, what was the original thinking? One gene for one protein. And so what they realized was is that depending on how a cell reads the DNA in a gene, that determines how it's going to synthesize a protein. And so the question they were left with is, Okay, well, what causes one cell to read the DNA in a gene one way, and what causes another cell to read that same DNA in a slightly different way? And so they looked back and they realized that they had found the answer several decades earlier. And it was in some experiments that had been done by a man named Dr. Bruce Lipton. So Dr. Bruce Lipton, he has spent his career studying how cells adapt to varying environments. And when he was a PhD student at the University of Virginia in biology, he was in charge of his stem cell lab. Now, the stem cell lab, like we've talked a lot in the last 15 years about stem cells, right? You've heard a lot about that? Scientists have been working with stem cells since the 60s. So he, this is 1970, he goes in there, he's working in his stem cell lab, and his advisor, he was in charge of the lab, and his goal was to make sure that the stem cells were thriving. And his advisor told him, very specifically, that if he finds a stem cell that's struggling, it's not because the stem cell is bad and you need to throw it out. It's because it's the environment needs to be changed around it. If you make small little changes to the environment of the stem cell, then the stem cell, the health of the stem cell will change dramatically. Now, what does that tell you? This is important. Follow this, because this goes all the way through what we're doing. A bad stem cell, right, a struggling stem cell is a reflection of what? A bad environment. So he takes this idea and he goes to his postdoc. And when he gets to his postdoc, he starts experimenting with human cells, placing them in different environments. So he takes a human cell, he puts it in an environment, and all of a sudden, that stem cell in that dish starts to grow bone. And then he takes that other human cell, he makes it in a different environment, slightly different environment, same cell, different environment, it starts to grow fat. And then he takes that exact same cell, no different in the cell, puts it in a slightly different environment, and it starts to grow muscle, to the point where it's like in your arm, where it starts to twitch. Same cell, different environment. This was the beginning of what we now call epigenetics, and what they determined is that the way a cell reads a gene differently is by the environment. The environment is what causes it to read it differently. Now, why have I taken all this time to explain to you how cells read DNA? Because you and I, we are made in the image of a cell. 
Last week we talked about how we're made in God's image, and I told you that spiritually that is true. Physically, we are made in the image of a cell. If you look at a cell, every organ that you find in a cell, that's in your body. And that makes sense, right? Because we evolved from a single cell organism, we're just gonna be larger, more complex versions of those cells. So if the environment is what changes the cell, then the environment is what changes the person. Do you get what I'm saying? If the environment is what changes the cell, the environment is what changes the person. The old way of thinking about DNA is that everything is fixed. Nothing can change. Whatever the instruction manual is inside of your cells, that's it. You're stuck with it. But if what Dr. Bruce Lipton is saying is correct, then no, that's not true. That's just the instruction manual. All that changes it is your environment. So if you can change the environment, you can change the person. This is a revolutionary idea. If you can change the environment, you can change the person. Because it's not just built into the fabric of our cells. This is built into our religion. Our religion, Christianity, is built around one fundamental premise. And that is, with God, nothing is set in stone. And that a person, no matter who they are, can always change for the better. Today, we read in the book of Exodus the story of the Israelites enslaved in Egypt, and they cry out to God, and they say to God, God, help us in our situation. And so God swoops in and tries to help them out. He wants to get them out of slavery, but how is he going to get them out of slavery? You can't keep them there, right? Their environment needs to change dramatically, does it not? So, what does God do? God sends them Moses. Moses comes in, and he says, hey guys, we're going to leave this bad environment behind, and we're going to go to this new environment, an environment that's flowing with milk and honey. Now, the reason why God wants Moses to get them out of their environment is not just because God wants them to be free physically. God also wants them to be free spiritually. And this is something that you have to follow with me on this, because this is really important. Our spirituality is connected and tied to our physical surroundings. I don't often think of this to be the case. Like when I'm struggling spiritually, which does happen every so often, when I think of, when I'm looking at myself, I go inside. I don't think to myself, what's happening in my environment to make me feel this way? I go inside and I say to myself, okay God, what's going on, right? And I try to work with it internally. But what I'm coming to find is, that's not really right. According to the scriptures, your physical environment affects your spirituality. Those things are intimately tied together. What do we read in Corinthians? This is really important. Look at what Paul says. He says, it is not the spiritual that comes first, but the physical and then the spiritual. So what he's saying right there is this, that your spiritual well-being is a reflection of your physical well-being. If your physical health is struggling, then so will your spiritual health. Those two things are tied together and are one. And this is not just some concept that is here in the Bible and it doesn't make any sense and it's from two millennia ago. This idea is literally built into yourselves. And so I want to end this morning by walking you through an example of how all of this comes together. Because I'm sure some of you are confused as to what I'm talking about and why I've talked about all this. I want to bring it home for you with an example. I want you to imagine for a moment that you are a drug addict. Imagine 
that you began your drug addiction when you were living at home with your parents as a teenager, which is when most people start using drugs. The reason why you started using drugs is because you are in an environment that is very stressful, very toxic, and your way of coping with that home life is that you turn to drugs to find relief. Now, that's not why everybody starts using drugs, but that's a big reason why a lot of people start using drugs. Now, initially, as you start and you get into it, you're not that addicted to it, but over time, you become more and more addicted, and then you probably move out of your parents' home, and you move on to the point where eventually you've been using drugs for long enough that you end up hitting rock bottom. And so you decide, you know what? I'm going to go to rehab. Now, you're going from a really negative environment, the environment where you're using drugs, to a positive environment, the environment of rehab. It's like the Israelites going from slavery, right, in Egypt, to the Holy Land, land flowing with milk and honey. Bad environment, positive environment. So you go into this new positive environment in rehab. And at first it's really hard because you're still craving the drugs, you want the drugs, but over a series of weeks, that craving starts to go away and the habit that you feel, it's not as strong as it once was. And that's because your biology is now responding to this new environment. This is what's happening internally inside of your cells. In your cells, as you're in this new environment of rehab, your cells are literally reading your DNA differently than before. One reason why is because the drugs aren't in your system anymore. And the second reason is because your environment does not stimulate you to use drugs in the same way as before. Now, over a long enough period of time, your spirit recovers and you feel strong in your will to avoid drugs. You follow me so far? Okay. So, after two months, four months, six months, however long you've been in rehab, you come out. And of course, you come out, you don't have any money, so where are you going to go? You're going to go home, right? So now you've gone from a good environment and you're going back into a stressful environment. In fact, it's the same environment that created your drug use in the first place. Now, the moment you walk in to your home, which is a stressful environment, right, your biology begins to respond immediately. Even if you're not using drugs, from the moment you step into that stressful environment, your biology, your DNA, your cells start to read your DNA in a similar pattern to when you were using drugs. And so what happens is, slowly, over time, the stress, it wears you down, and your spirit, it can't handle it anymore, and eventually what happens? You can't hold back on your cravings, you give in, and you relapse. Now what I have just described to you, it happens all the time with recovering drug addicts. Very common. And what they tell these recovering drug addicts is they say, it's part of your DNA. There's nothing you can do about it. It's just part of who you are. You're always going to be struggling with this addiction. But remember what I just told you. What's the fundamental principle of this sermon? You change the environment, you change the person. So, look at what happened when you went to rehab. You went to rehab the first time, right? You go into this new environment, the environment changes your biology. And then, the biology, it shifts, and it changes your spirit. Remember, because what does Paul say? It's the physical first, then the spiritual, which then changes all of your behavior. So you stop using drugs. 
When you left rehab, the exact opposite thing occurred, right? You go into the environment, right, that's stressful, which changes your biology to the negative, and it changes your spirit to the point where you relapse. So clearly, nothing is set in stone, right? It all depends on what? Your environment, where you are. That's what changes it for you. So, if you change the person, you change the environment. Or you change the environment, you change the person. Now, why is this the case? This is the case because your biology and your spirit are intimately connected with one another. If you want to have a strong spiritual life, you need to be in an environment where your physical well-being can thrive. And for many people, that is not possible. Many people live in predominantly negative environments in their lives. And that is why the church is so very important. Because the church tends to be a place where people can come to a positive environment and they are able to get away from the negative environments that have plagued them their entire lives. Indeed, the church often represents the only place that a person can come to escape their negative environments and to become a new person and to start over again. And I want to end by pointing out two things. One has to do with you personally, and the second has to do with this place. First, you all. If you live in negative environments, which I guarantee you, some of you have negative environments in your life. And I want you to think about where could those be? For some of you, it's work. For some of you, it's your family life. We need to be honest. That can be part of it. For some of you, it could be friends that you hang around. For some of you, it might be places that you go that you shouldn't go. There's all kinds of ways that we have negative influences in our lives. I want you to think about where those things are. And my hope for you is that you would either, one, the best thing you could do is extract yourself from them, or two, if you can't do that, like you've got to live with your family most of the time, uh, you try to change that for the better, right? Now, if you can't do either of those things, if you can't extract yourself or you can't change your environment for the better, here's what I would say. I want you to know that this place is always a place you can come to be in a positive environment. And that's where I shift to what we're doing in here. The way this place becomes a positive environment for those who are struggling is by you all in here showing them love and compassion and consideration when they walk through these doors. We want this place to be a place where somebody can come in and they can truly start over again if they need to. And so what I'm asking you all to do this morning is to make this place a place where people can come in and be a part of who we are, where they feel loved, where they can have their spirit rejuvenated, where they can come in and know that nothing is set in stone and that God can help rebuild them into a better person. I need your help doing that because the truth is we are only as good as the people who sit in these pews. That is the reality. And if you all show love to those who come through our doors, then you can make such a huge difference in their lives. We can transform people who have been struggling for a long time by giving them the environment they need to shift and be better. Because the truth is, when you change the environment, you change the person. With God, nothing is set in stone, and I hope that you truly believe that. Amen. Thanks for listening. 
And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.